This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations presented by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. This week, we're sharing selections from a few of our previous episodes, featuring conversations with three poets, Cameron Awkward Rich, Laylee Long Soldier, and Damaris B. Hill. For details about each of these conversations, read the episode notes in your podcast app or on our website, ciis.edu, where you can also find out more about CIIS and our public programs. Thank you for listening, and we wish you well. The girl is brought to her knees in a field of glass. I could give her a name. I could cross out this story, cut the sentence short, and her knees are wet with nothing due. I could close the zipper. I could plant a long-stemmed rose between his thighs, trade her throat for a wasp nest, let them leave the story wrecked, erase enough the girl's black ink encased in snow. She could freeze there. I could change the ending. Daffodils, marigolds, what better place to start, brought to her knees and crowned with gold. I'm sorry, I have to unlock the room now. Let the boy play his favorite song, split the girl from her shadow, give him a story of his own. Feel free to sing along, you know the words. Yeah, okay. Bridge. When she is a child, her father drives for hours to sit with the bridge. When she is still a child, full of hot tar, tells her she is the only reason he did not jump. Her answer pulled unflinching from the city she carried there. The river will so often open for another body swallow it so gently that the pavement would have ruined you. You tell this story over and over. It is easy, as if it explains something, anything about water or having once been your father's girl. You will tell it again, as if the telling will wear your cruelty into grief smooth and plain. And what you leave out always is when she is still a child, the tar cooling and hardening into an unfamiliar shape, She dreams for years, every sidewalk rising to meet him like a swollen river. What you leave out is the deep bruise of the city as he splays and opens inside you. It is only a dream. The nightmare is the version in which his falling is perpetual. When I am a child, when I am a child over and over as if the wet tar smell, the city carried, scraped and empty. And you hate it, your body or your father. I love that you went to Bridge after reading the first poem, um, especially because there's a moment in both of those poems. There's sort of a hinge and the introduction of story, both the word, but also as a um, sort of mechanism for pivoting the poem in a different direction occurs. And in the first poem, you have this moment where the door unlocks and sort of the, the trajectory goes toward um, giving a poem to the boy, or I'm sorry, giving a story to the boy as sort of the path forward. Um, and then in Bridge, there's this moment where, you know, you go from this like this, this hyper intense series of images into you tell the story over and over. And it, it's a, sort of a hard shift. And perhaps you can speak a little bit to 
sort of how you used story in that sense in, in both of those poems. Um, people always ask me questions about like, what were you doing in that poem? And I hardly ever know. Um, but I guess a kind of meta answer I can give you um, is that, I mean, obviously this book tries to be not only a kind of transition narrative, but like at its core, that's what it is. Um, and so one of my kind of anxieties about writing it was just like the fact that there is a kind of predefined narrative or story for like how transition occurs. Um, so often, I mean, I think that partially what's going on in both of those poems is like a, um, an anxiety about, okay, so is this a story about the kind of boy taking over the narrative from the girl? Um, is this a story about um, replaying all of the kind of like weird childhood, like intense images? Um, and I and I think that I like, uh, I think that the reason I use story so much like in this collection as a whole is because I really wanted to figure out how to use, I mean, like, like you said, you, you said that really well, how to use the idea of narrative as a hinge point rather than... Um, trying to like just like write a narrative if that makes sense uh, like like narrative was like an idea as opposed to the thing that I was trying to do um yeah so I mean I think that both of them are just sort of anxieties about like we all know what's going on here but how do I do something different for sure and there's this sense um this sort of diving this is diving right into sympathetic little monster but I would I I would say uh I feel like I'm talking to like the archivist of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it kind of felt that way in both of a, a, a strange and exciting and also very bizarre way of, um, so we're, we're going to go back to the book in a second, but, but sort of this moment um, where, you know, given the context of an evening like this, you're sort of, um, you're sort of given time to read everything that you have ever written such that we're ready to talk about just about anything. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, it's interesting, you know, go going back to the book, looking at, um, I think both of those poems are sort of really, really incredible examples of this almost like symbolist uh, catalog of um, objects and uh, um, interactions with objects that you sort of develop throughout the entirety of the book. And it leads to the sort of, um, magnificent series of final poems and so um, you know when when you look at story is it when you look at the sort of definition or the ontology of a story and you use that as a mechanism within a poem I see you doing that um, with many other things you know in the in the first poem this you know wasps nest daffodils marigolds you know being crowned with gold and sort of those Im images repeating throughout um, not only just the poem but also the rest of the book and so perhaps you can sort of speak to um, you know those speak to the catalog of objects and symbols that you developed in this writing uh, no I mean I don't know if I can <laughs> uh, well I think I mean Part of it is just sort of like 
returning to the problem, right, of like essentially writing a transition narrative and not wanting to do that is that part of what I'm trying to do is to build a world um, that this character of the little girl who is. So for all of you, uh, I read this first poem, which is the girl is brought to her knees in a field of glass. But then throughout the book, there is like a, a kind of a narrative sequence that all of the titles are the little girl X, right? The little girl, the uh, can't remember the titles of my own poems, but the little girl is always doing stuff. She is having dreams. She's having questions. She's like trying to figure out what the world is. Um, so part of the project of the book, right, is to like both have a narrative, but also like build a world for that narrative to happen in. So the catalog of objects is like harshly just about building a world that this character is interacting with. Um, partially, it's probably a bunch of thievery, you know? Um, uh, sort of not seriously, but also deeply seriously. I often say that <laughs> most of my writing is just sort of stolen from writing that I love. Um, I think that when I was reading this book, uh, or not reading this book, when I was writing this book, I was reading um, Eli Shipley's who's another like transmasculine poet, I was reading his book, which is called Boy with Flowers. Um, I was also reading this book by Lauren Berry called The Lifting Dress, which um, sort of changed the way that I thought about what a book was. Um, so I think that incidentally, probably a lot of the objects in this book were stolen from those books without my full knowledge of that thievery. I certainly, I certainly would not consider that thievery. I mean, Great. right? <laughs> How many poems have you read, like with roses in them? Right? Yeah, like that's true. roses are all of ours, at least. Um, that's my stance. Great. Yeah, I mean, that's my stance also. But I, but I guess sometimes it feels more like thievery when I know retrospectively I can trace a direct line between having read a book and written a thing. I mean, I, I sort of love that you directly brought that up, especially w when I think of writing, when I think of art in the Bay Area at present, there is, um, and especially in, you know, queer communities, there's this sense, there's this urgency around lineage and this urgency around legacy and looking back on, you know, the histories of artists and creatives in the city and um, how quickly those communities and those spaces are disappearing, um, you know, invoking the, those who have inspired us or those who came before us is like, a, it's a very, it's a very topical thing that's happening. It's happening at drag shows, it's happening at parties, it's happening in the poetry. And so, um, you know, I, I would be interested to hear, you know, you directly talk about that sort of creative lineage that you see in your writing. Um. Yeah, I mean, definitely I can say that um, because I was once a, like, strange, uncertain, quiet, shy, black child who, like, didn't quite know how to be in the world, um, writers like James Baldwin and Randall Cannon and, um, I mean, mostly them, um, kind of made me feel like, oh, there is this whole kind of literary... Uh, precedent for the kind of shy, strange black child that I am. Um, I think there are a bunch of 
mostly white, like strange white women poets who I am sort of always deeply in conversation with, like Sharon Olds and um, Lauren Berry probably wouldn't count herself in that, um, but she is that to me. Um, Anne Carson, certainly. Um, but also, I think that I'm like deeply lucky because I have really great friends. Um, I think that a lot of the time people are like disappointed because mm, I think that for a lot of people, the idea of having heroes is like really important. Like having people who sort of did the thing that you're doing before you. But actually, like, I think that most of my greatest inspirations and most of my greatest loves are like horizontal ones. Um, my friends Sam Sachs, Dennis Smith, Brandy Troy, Hanif Abdurraqib, uh, Safia Elhio, Kava Akbar. I don't know. Like I like I think that there are like so many like amazing brown, like mostly brown, black and brown, mostly queer in some way, poets like writing right now that uh, it just like feels like an amazing moment to like sort of look around and say like, look, here are all of these people doing the thing that I love and doing it well and like trying very hard to be like good people. Um, and yeah, so I'd say that most of my inspirations are sort of like say, but like, I don't know. Not at all. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think that's, I mean, that's excellent. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, it speaks to, um, I mean, it speaks to excellence since it, it speaks to the um, communities that you've surrounded yourself with and you've grown with. And I know in our conversations in the last couple of days, um, I think something that's, something that I so love about your writing and, and your work as a poet is, is sort of this, uh, ambivalence to um, trajectory. I don't, I don't know if that's worded correctly, but this, this sort of, la this lack of interest in like, oh, well, now I've got to go win more awards and like, <laughs> you know, I need to tour the world with my poetry, right? And like, Maybe if I could affect that persona, I would yeah. be way more interested in winning <laughs> awards. Yeah, but, but, but you, you continually go back to this sort of, the, this sense of, um, um, you know, writing as a, a pathway to understand the self, but then also as a pathway to understand kin and, and the family that um, not only you have, but that you've created. And I, I don't know, it's, it's refre that's refreshing to me. Um, in, in a time when young artists spend and have to spend so much work, um, you know, with a, with a megaphone, um, you know, cutting across the noise and communicating out into the world what they're doing. Um, it's true. I mean, I have both been, like, deeply lucky and, um, yeah, like, I, <laughs> I mean, it, it, knowing how hard it is to be a creative in any sort of way these days, right, like, knowing how hard the academic job market is, right? Knowing how hard um, it is to like kind of cut through the noise. I, I just like know that I have been deeply lucky because I have for the most part just been doing what I want. And then eventually I leave my bedroom and I show someone the thing that I've been doing and they say, okay, I guess so, Cameron. And um, 
I don't know why that that's, I don't know why that has been the way that things have gone, but like, um, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm deeply lucky to be able to live the life that I've been living because I don't have the kind of skills one needs to be a smooth networker, you know? You'll never, you'll, you'll, ne you'll, you'll never see me at the cocktail party. Um, or if I was there, something would have gone horribly wrong. And this sort of gets at, um, you know, one of, you, you alluded to this approach in your writing, looking at time in a different way and, and looking at um, the space one needs, um, you know, not only physically, but just in, in a temporal way, the, the amount of space and time that it takes for you to do your work. And that being often in direct opposition to a lot of the um, larger influences or forces at play for young poets and writers today. Um, it's true. Every, everything, I mean, everything in every writing industry requires that you're like always producing, always doing things, always like manufacturing yourself for an audience. And um, uh, yeah, that seems to me to be like counter to doing the work, right? It seems to me counter to like deep thought and figuring out how not only to like write, but write well. Like all, all of these things take time and take a little bit of solitude, I think. Um. Sort of reminds me of um, uh, Sarah Ahmed's work, um, look, looking at uh, the use of use and looking at utility and, and trying to unpack how historically utility as a concept has been used to construct hierarchies, um, correct use or the correct definition of how something is used or how one does something, um, you know, marginalizing communities and elevating other communities. And, and so, you know, with that in mind, it's, um, it's almost like a call to action to take time, you know, to, to move slower and to, and to choose not to, um, you know, attack your work through the lens of that sort of utilitarian, I must produce more, I must produce more, I must pr produce more. It's true. I mean, I think, I think that is a privilege and a luxury to be able to make that choice, right? Um, but I think maybe I'm going to use that as a segue into reading another poem, which addresses precisely this issue. <laughs> um, well, sort of. Um, so for those of you listening and also for those of you right here, I'm going to read a poem um, which is about my last name. So my last name is Awkward Rich, which is like a deeply bizarre name. Um, I have never met another person outside of my like immediate family with the last name Awkward. Um, sometimes people like on Facebook with like very similar names, but like one of the W's has been removed will friend me. But anyway, we're all black, which is like... Um, weird, right? Because like, we all know how black people in this country got our names. Uh, either it was like taking, like having, like taking on the name of a slave owner or taking on the name of like the occupation that your family did after that. Um, or I mean, some people just like made up names, but like who named themselves awkward, right? Like that just seems like a, like a deeply, like, why would you do that? So anyway, <laughs> my family has this whole like sort of mythology about, I mean, precisely this, like use and usefulness um, and the name awkward. Um, 
And it's a story that my father's mother liked to tell, which was that like once upon a time there was a slave and in order to like be able to get out of doing work that he thought was dangerous, that would like kill him, he would just kind of like dramatically fling himself off of a ladder in order to like seem to be incompetent, right? And that um, that it was like this performance of awkwardness, right? This performance of incompetency that let him persist. Um, I don't really think that that is a true story, but it's a nice story. Um, and so this poem is sort of about that. It's also sort of about how nobody believes that my identification is real because my last name is weird. Um, essay on the awkward black object after M. Awkward, my father. There are at least two theories about love. Both begin as violence. The subject encounters the object and a slit opens inside him. Love at first sight. Harriet's master sees her as if for the first time and now must have her. She wakes in the night to a terrible face rising above her, a wasted moon. The question is, once made into an object for the other, how can the thing for itself survive? In the airport, the bar, the movie theater, the grocery store, someone looks at you, your face then your face in the plastic of your card, then the card, then the card, then you are caught in the frame of their looking, sealed between two panes of glass. You don't know what has caused the moment to harden around you, not this time, but then someone chuckles, lets you pass. Everyone wants to know the story of my name, everyone. It's a nigger joke, you know. You already know the story. A man is made into a thing and sutured to it, the name. There's another option. It's not the truth, though it might be, which is, in the end, what matters. Now, when the thing is made to do dangerous work, he flings its body from the low rungs of a ladder, limbs akimbo and fluttering and still alive. Someone is talking to you. It hardly matters about what. Hand on your hand and you recognize the smile. You stutter, mumble, don't look them in the eye. You fall away from the moment as if pulled by a law governing the motion of your body. You can't help it. You're not in control. Give your name as proof. The verb work, meaning perform labor and or function properly. As long as the object works, it is bound to its own annihilation. The solution, fall, fall apart, decay. Harriet wasting in the garret. The slave caught in perpetual flight. The body opening to receive the bullet, the monster killing its maker and returning to the certainty of ice. Don't misunderstand. I don't hate white people. Nothing here resembles hate or freedom from hate. Love, after all, is all you need. A nigger walks into a bar. A nigger falls off of a ladder. A nigger is named for its inability to function, to work. You get the joke right. Awkward is both punishment and method, the unending flight from you to I. We haven't made it to the punchline. Everyone is waiting. Everyone wants resolution for the poem to click shut. Who gets the last word? Who, in the end, dictates the story? I'm sorry. I really don't know. I've been thinking a lot about the, the power and the um, uh, lack of power of an apology. I think we've talked a little bit about our communities and 
I write a lot about the Japanese American community and the incarceration um, during World War II and the reparations and repair and apologies that were made and how the trauma and the legacies of um, that, that trauma are still being healed or trying to be healed. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder, yeah, how for yourself um, do you turn towards this history, these histories, these legacies? Um, does the poetry transmute something? Does it transform? Does it give you a new energy? Do you just crumble under the weight of it sometimes? How do you take care of yourself? Mm. Yeah, any of that. Right. <laughs> well, I think um, the first thing is that, you know, part of my approach is not to crumble under the weight and to realize that I cannot, as one person, uh, you know, pick up that huge boulder or that huge massive thing, the events or what have you, on my own. And I can't address all of it within a poem. I can't even address all of it within 28, as I wrote here in this section. Uh, so I think, first of all, there's that awareness that maybe there's only particular little pieces um, at a time that I'm I'm capable or prepared to do within, let's say, a poem. Um, or, on on the other hand, let's say, um, I wrote a piece um, titled 38, in which I addressed um, the hanging of 38 Dakota um, men um, under the presidency of Abraham Lincoln under his orders. Um, and that I that piece took me a really long time to write. And I and I um, built it line by line. So it actually took me a few years. And um, in that and it ended up being a six page piece. So in that I did do my very best to address that event in in its wholeness, if, mm -hmm. if it was possible. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these other um, pieces uh, in the whereas section, I think, I'll admit, I feel like I, I approached them almost the way the same way I did, let's say, Wakalapi, to be quite honest. I, I'll have a begin point, but I think I, I like to be fair to the poem and say I don't really know what's going to happen here, you know? Uh, and I, I want to, I want to see myself what is revealed. I don't start a piece saying this is the point I want to make. <laughs> I don't think that's fair to myself. I don't think it's fair. Otherwise, I sh as we were saying, I should just write an essay, right? I should start with a thesis and then prove it and then end with a conclusion. So um, I think in many ways, with those, the uh, in the. Uh, like even with working the, with the congressional document, this governmental language, I still employ some of the, the tools that I use in all of my poems, you know, which is to allow whatever needs to happen, will, you know, mm -hmm. allow that it will happen, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, maybe you could close with one more poem for us. Uh, I'm going to close with this piece um, I usually close most of my readings with. And it's uh, Resolution 2. So just very quickly, I structured my response to that national apology. I mirrored the structure of that apology. So if you go online and read it, you will see that it's structured in three parts. So the first part is what's called the whereas statements, and there's 20 whereas statements. So I wrote 20 of my own, 20 whereas pieces. And then it has seven resolutions, the second part. And so I wrote seven of my own. And then it concludes with two disclaimers at the end of it, basically saying, now that we've said all this, you can't uh, take us to court. Uh, so I did the same. Um, and I had two disclaimers to the book. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> so this, th this is from the resolution section. And this is number two. I commend this land and this land. Honor this land. Native, this land. Peoples, this land. For, this land. The, this land. Thousands, this land, of this land, years, this land, that, this land, they, this land have this land stewarded this land and this land protected this land, this land, this land, this land, this land, this land, this, this. This is, um, it looks like a history book, but these are poems. And so, um, I'm going to open up by reading one poem. Now, I usually read either a poem to my grandmother or I read um, a poem to my literary ancestor, um, Lucille Clifton. 
But today I want to start with uh, reading a poem about Ruby McCullum. So, uh, and this is on page 113. So I want to tell you a little bit about Ruby McCullum first. Ruby McCullum was a woman who was considered to almost be a mathematical genius. She was very bright. She got married to a man named Sam. They uh, moved from south to north in the Great Migration. Once they moved up north, they learned something else or some other things about business, decided to move back to Florida where they were from and start their businesses. And they did those things. In addition to legitimate businesses, they also had an illegal numbers (coughs) business. You know, kind of like illegal lottery, right? Um, Which uh, Ruby McCollum managed all the finances and numbers for this business. Um, So a uh, pretty prominent doctor comes along, and he wants to be bribed along with the police officers. And the McCollums agree. They agree. Um, And then Dr. Adams decides that he wants paramour rights. Now, this is something we don't really talk about now, but it was very prevalent then, 1930s. Paramour rights are when you have the intersections of race, gender, and class that favor wealthy white males in a Jane Crow South, and they decide that they want to pick usually a black woman to have a second family with. So he decides that he wants a family with Ruby. Now, it doesn't matter that Ruby's already married. doesn't matter that Ruby has three children with her husband. doesn't matter that they have all of these businesses. He's decided that he wants Ruby. So then Ruby has to negotiate power in a Jane Crow South, right? Ruby has a fourth child that is visibly and community accepted to be this doctor's child. Um, She gets pregnant again, and then Dr. Adams is dead on his floor one one Sunday morning, right? When the court, when it goes to trial, the judge in charge of the court case is Dr. Adams' first cousin. His name is like John Adams. But this is, this is the good part of the story. good part of the story is that there was always a sister to be, you know, in her corner. And that sister was Zora Neale Hurston. So Zora Neale Hurston, we know that she was an anthropologist, was already documenting this phenomenon, how it was specific to Southern America, these paramour rights. And so she was quick to come and document the story. And then the Pittsburgh Courier decided not to pay Zora So then Zora left, because if you know Zora, you know she's about her money. Um, But as soon as the court case ended, Zora Neale Hurston wrote a fictional story based on Ruby McCollum and and published it with The Atlantic. So these are the things that you need to know about Ruby McCollum. But now we would call these types of uh, crimes battered woman syndrome, right? Um, Ruby McCollum wasn't allowed to talk in the case at all. The only thing that she was allowed to admit is that her fourth child belonged to Dr. Adams. Everything else, they, they refused to admit into testimony. So this is my, my poem for Ruby McCullum. All right. Um, they lie. 
Some say that Ruby and her husband Sam are live oaks, black Bonnie and Clyde, but they make no mention of the fine house with a pool and the ring of policemen swimming in her and Sam's pockets. I swear, between Alabama and the Gulf, it's hard to keep anything out of a gator's mouth, out of a raccoon's grip. Some bandits are dirty as the devil, crawling into your yard, reaching. Greedy bandits treat an open window like an, as an invitation. You find them fat and splayed, sultan kings, crisscrossed in your satins. They reach, clawing you close, whispering, paramour, threatening to tear any black man to pieces. They are, these are the ways he is going to disrobe you, fit you to bear his rascals. A raccoon never retreats, not for threat or bait or broom. They will run you ragged, race, ever wake to find yourself prostrate, Dr. Adam's floor, dressed for church, praying for some prescription or some poison. Ruby needed a bit of something to rid her of the little rascal scratching inside. No, who else would she call? when a critter insists on living in her walls. So, yeah, this, this book tries to, to create praise songs for women that were negotiating power when people presumed that they had none. When they were absolutely, their backs were against the wall and they were they were left to be victims. They made other choices. And so tell me a little bit about how you kind of formulated this idea of integrating research and poetry. And you even have visuals in here. You have pictures that go along with this so that we can see the, the faces of these women. Um, what do you, you did you have a term for what you call this? Yes, this is this is remix culture. So I'm in a place that I know will applaud this. So I don't work in a place that necessarily applauds this. But because you go to school here, you know that the experiences that you bring into this place, your life experiences, are just as much a part of the academic discourse as the theories that they teach you here. My black girlhood experience was about hip-hop. I moved outside of New York City when I was in the sixth grade. That's when Special Ed came out with I Got It Made. And so the soundtrack of my, of my life is hip-hop. Hip-hop and um, what we call house music on the East Coast, you guys probably call dub. Um, that, that was the soundtrack of my, of my life. And that's my black girlhood experience. <laughs> And so in addition to um, my father being a pretty prominent pastor in town, and there are a lot of references to spirituality, but the texture of the book, the craft, is that of remix and what I call literary DJing. So DJing is all about the sample. It's all about the sample and when you bring it in. And so the archive is the sample that we all recognize. It's the picture of these famous women. And then the history is kind of um, also a part of the groove, but it's kind of like the, the get down. And, you know, it's the rhythm and the pace that we're all 
abiding by. But the poems become the lyrics that I lay on top. And so this is, this is remix in print form. I just want to finish by you talking about you, you, you bring in Sandra Bland. I'll read Sandra Bland first before I talk about it. Okay. Thank you for paying homage to Sandra. I had to. Sandra was very important to the book. In the beginning, she was, she was almost like a, a Virgil, almost like a god, right? But she's so young that, um, that I had to turn to Harriet Tubman because I needed, I needed somebody else that, that knew, knew a longer history. And, and she was definitely it. So now I have to find the Sandra Bland poem. And I always seem to lose it. Is it towards the end? I think it's towards the end, but it's never really oh, here it towards is. Um, the end. 97. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think I wrote, I think initially it was towards the end, but it's never really towards the end. No. Because the end is about my son, and so it's not towards the end, but it was one of the last poems that I wrote. So this is uh, Sandy Speaks, and it's a choral refrain. Um, it could have been me, with three degrees creased into the front seats, bits of constitution in my veins, like Braille. The declarations tattooed inside my eyelids. How many times did Sally Hemings have to hear about them and affirm the tiny ego of Tom before he bears himself to his brothers, collecting their boastings, forgiving his debts. It could have been me, like Sandy. I would have missed them dashes in the road. The ways I skirt around corners under the cover of sun, I fleeing an interview, happy to have some means, pockets fluffy with promises. It could have been me, listening to the gospel, the lilts in my throat, running, and a marble fog above my lips. My car would be all clouds, a heaven shaved with blue and red lights. It would have been me, my eyebrows high, my voice low, questioning Encenia about his bidding. It could have been me, a black woman, the color of Oklahoma clay, a policeman pretending to be some cowboy. Sandy had been in Texas but a day. How long had he been hunting for one like her? And Cindy had seen it, this in his mind. It was a means of forgetting the woman that refused to love him and the black man she clinged to. In this vision, he is a rodeo-style hero and Sandy is some rogue rascal. He holds out his tongue to the shower of coins and praises. A black woman without a job owns her dignity. Did his fantasies desire that too? He minded out of her back with his knees. History told him that he could squeeze gold from a black woman's wrist with iron cuffs. Is that why he braided the noose to resemble a lasso? So I, I wanted, it was important to put Sandy 
um, or Sandra Bland in this book because when I think about the histories of criminality and resistance, it's important to remember that Harriet Tubman was considered a criminal. It's important, right? When we start to talk about democracy, when we start to talk about the history of this country, when we start to talk about what freedom really, really means, the person that freed a thousand people was considered a criminal. The price on her head, dead or alive in the pre-emancipated South, was $40,000, which in 2014 was equivalent to $1,100,000. I think it is not ironic, but um, telling that the price, the initial price on the Sada Shakur's head was a million dollars. Right? A woman that ran the Black Liberation Party. Right? Who doctors, doctors have documented that she could not have killed that police officer. And I don't want anybody to die. But she could not have shot that police officer and murdered him. That's what three different medical examiners say. But her price on her head was still a million dollars. The same worth of Harriet Tubman. I also find it telling... And I I don't want to start a conspiracy theory. I'm just talking about the parallels. That Sandra Bland had began her own campaign against police brutality. That was the hashtag Sandy Speaks. If you go to that hashtag right now, there are archived video logs of her talking about police brutality, right? And I think it's more telling about how power is negotiated in this country, that three women that were committed to liberation, at least three women, right? And this is not even talking about Fannie Lou Hamer or Ella Baker or Angela Davis or any of these other women in American history, right? But these women that were committed to liberation were instantly criminalized. What is so dangerous about a black woman being committed to freedom in this country, particularly the freedom of all, right? If it's individualist, it's, 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 I, I, I find less criminalization occurring in individualist acts of liberation and resistance. But when a black woman says we can all get free, then she got problems. She has problems in her life that she has not generated, right? And so it was important that Sandra be a part of that, considering the parallels. Um, And her very small but appropriate protest for her generation, and then her becoming a victim of the very brutality that she stood against. This is a powerful book with some powerful words for us to take at heart and to remember these women. We can't forget them. Mm-mm. We can't forget them. We cannot forget them. I thank you. Thank you, Denise. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.